Hello and welcome to the Governance Forum podcast series, In the Chair. My name is Tom Ward and I manage the Governance Forum at the Institute of Public Administration. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast series. The purpose of the series is to engage with highly experienced and high-profile individuals who have held or hold senior positions in public bodies and public benefit entities, including, for example, as chairperson, as chief executive, or a senior government official, and to explore their experiences, insights, and lessons learned from a governance perspective. But equally and importantly, to explore the human side of occupying a senior position and the pressures and stresses and perhaps joys that accrue. Our guest today is Fiona Ross. Fiona is a highly experienced board chairperson and non-executive director. She's a very successful career in stockbroking and capital markets in London, Dublin, Europe and, and the US. She's currently chair of Cora Sumper Aaron or CIE and chair of the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board as well as of Natural Capital Ireland. And she holds a number of non-executive roles as well, including as director at the Scottish Government uh, since March 2019, and more recently appointed a non-executive director at the Northern Ireland office. She holds a number of other uh, non-exec roles, including with Network Rail UK, and was a board member as well of the reconstituted HSE board in 2019 for just under three years, which we'll touch upon as well, Fiona. Fiona, you're very welcome to the podcast, and we're delighted to have you today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Can I start off with, with one of those, which is the National Paediatric Hospital Development Board. You were appointed in August uh, 2021, and I think everyone who's listening will know there's a, a fair degree of scrutiny uh, and spotlight on the, the organisation and the, the development of the hospital and the cost of it, I guess, as well. Um, and I guess there's two questions for me with, with that role uh, when you were appointed as chair. Why take it on, uh, given the pressure and the you know, it's almost in a crisis scenario. And maybe how you've gone about it as a, as a chairperson on the board ever since. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think uh, a lot of people ask me that question in relation to why I took on the Children's Hospital Board. Uh, and certainly it has proven to be every bit as challenging as it might have, one might expect it to be. Um, I guess probably I was on the HSE board during COVID. And um, for lots of different reasons, lots of appropriate reasons, a lot of the power and decision making at the HSE was moved to the Cabinet Subcommittee during COVID. And I found that there was um, a lot less decision making and a lot less control being exerted by the HSE board at the time. And I was looking for a more meaningful and a more directive role. And so when the vacancy arose uh, at the Children's Hospital, it felt like an opportunity to go in as chair and to direct the board uh, in a more, as I say, hands on, practical Mm. and pragmatic way. Uh, also recognising that uh, there was a need. The department at that point in time were looking for someone to take it on uh, and they kind of knew me from the HSE. So it was kind of a good fit for a number of reasons at that point in time. Okay. Uh, and your and your, your stewardship as chair as a board ever since, I mean, because, because of that spotlight, that scrutiny, which which hasn't gone away so much, has it? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it has not. And I, and I think that it has been, it, it has been and continues to be a very challenging role. Uh, a lot of very dedicated people around the table, some new and some old. There are some folks that have been there since the very beginning, and they have certainly soldiered on on that board for a long time. Um, it is um, certainly, and then we've recruited a couple of new, very good new folks in the last, say, 12 months or so. Uh, but you're right, it's in the spotlight all the time. There's lots of scrutiny. Uh, I think really for me, uh, coming after the previous chair, Fred, who was mm. uh, is known, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying it, for his uh, rather um, uh, very uh, proactive uh, approach. We were in a period of, of calm with the contractor at the point in time. Okay. And the interim chair, um, Tim, had done a good piece of work in trying to get us into a place of calm and reflection to try and get the focus on the building as opposed to the focus on the fight, as it were. Um, the stakeholders, primarily the minister and the, and the department uh, and the cabinet for that matter, uh, all very keen to understand lots of, as you say, public accounts, 
committee attention, lots of uh, joint committee attention, uh, joint Oroxus committee attention. Um, so the job really was just to come in, um, be calm, listen, understand, yeah. uh, and then trying to figure out the best way forward for the, for the, the project. Uh, there's a very small team at the development board. Again, there's probably only a handful of actually direct employees. So your actual team is very small. Lots and lots of contractors yeah. and obviously lots and lots of people on the site. Um, but certainly it remains a very challenging project, um, both in terms of the budget and the timeline. And you mentioned the HSE board then. You were appointed in January 2019. So there's a, there is a period prior to COVID yet I'm struck by it's a, it's a reconstituted board after a period of the HSE having, having no board. It's a new board almost like the first day at school, everyone around the table. And how you found that, how the board found it in terms of finding its feet and, and asserting its role as a, as a new board at the HSE, because it's a large, complicated organisation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and for those listening to the podcast and those interested in governance, you would never, ever, ever do it that way. You would <laughs> never have what was essentially a new chair, a whole new board, and then not long afterwards, the appointment of Paul Reid as a new CEO. So there's no doubt about that. There was no uh, institutional memory. There was no track record. There was no papers that we could look back on and reflect there had been no board. Mm. And so as a result, where did the decisions get taken that got taken in the Department of Health or within the organisation itself? But certainly in terms of having a board to report to or a board a board reporting to the minister, mm. it just didn't exist. So there was no doubt about that. That was a very significant challenge. Board members themselves were coming from a very wide variety of experiences. Some For some, it was their first board ever and some were much more experienced. So again, even coming around the table and understanding what a director does, how a board operates, how subcommittee structures operate, um, and then what was our job and what we'd be there to do in, in the context of having been reconstituted as you say um, and then no sooner had we begun to think that we might actually figure out what to do than COVID hit and as okay. I said earlier then a, a lot of the uh, decision making and thought processes then moved again legitimately to, to government buildings. And was that a difficult position to be in as, as a board member as a board in terms of yeah, the, the spotlight as always maybe on health equally and, and amplified during COVID the minister the secretary general the, the CEO of the organisation and I'm just curious of how that feels as a board member and a board Yeah it did I, mean, I think at the end of the day I mean again because it was a national crisis and because it was COVID you had to accept that there was a lot of things that were going to happen around you and, mm. and above or below you as it were and certainly the, the way in which the system mobilised was absolutely fantastic and again credit is due and credit has been given to the frontline staff and the mm. way in which they kept the show on the road but from a board's point of view I mean the board was there we were there we were established under statute, under primary legislation to run the HSE and to be responsible for all aspects of the health service. But but at that time, for obvious reasons, the focus was almost exclusively on COVID and on the COVID response. So it was quite challenging then if you did try to raise issues associated with what you might call BAU within the health system. And certainly we're now seeing the impact of having had that time away from BAU and a focus on BAU as we now, you know, the health service gets back up and running mm. um, and we're trying to move forward with what is a, a very substantial budget. So as a board you know, trying to understand you know, whether you could um, get in the way of the big crisis decision making to make what might be quite boring, but at the same time, very relevant questions around staffing levels, around waiting lists, around screening, for example, which we had to stop during COVID and the impact of that and plans maybe to set it up as a good example. Um, but at the time, the, it really was a hothouse. It was certainly a, a, a sort of a, a crisis board to be on for obvious reasons. We were meeting uh, by phone uh, weekly, if not more than once a week oh, yeah. um, and there would be long conversations where uh, we would get briefed and then as I said earlier you know the, 
the ability to impact some of the decision was somewhat muted by the fact that we weren't clinicians at the end of the day either. So a lot of the decisions were taken, again, appropriately by NEFID. Uh, we had one or two clinicians around the table, but by and large, we were more traditional directors, as you'd understand them to be, and each of us trying to find where we could land uh, a contribution to the national effort. And I can turn to the CIE then, um, a commercial state entity. Um, you were appointed chairperson in June 2018. Unconscious, maybe even before this, there's a level of deregulation of the bus market in particular, between national and Dublin bus routes as well. Um, and the motorway network is getting all better all the time. Um, so there's certain pressure, on, I imagine, on that, on that company. You're, you're appointed in the middle of 2018. What, what were and what have been your priorities? Because you, you were renewed in 2021 as well, weren't you? As yes, absolutely. I'm coming. I'll be finished my second term uh, in June 24. So I'm, I'm well into my second term at this point in time. Um, CIE is an interesting, uh, had some interesting challenges. And again, um, I had been on the board of the NTA and I'd been interim chair of the NTA. Uh, and in fact, Fred Barry became the chair of the NTA mm-hmm. when I went off to be the chair of the Children's Hospital. So we had a bit of mu- music chairs there at, at that point in time. Um, CIE is, a, as you pointed out, it's a group structure. So we have actually four subsidiary companies. We have the two bus companies, Irish Rail, and then we have a CIE Tours, the, the inbound tourism business that's based in New Jersey. Um, the governance structure of CIE is a very significant challenge to the organisation. And again, if you think back to the way in which the transport system, as you pointed out, was restructured, actually going back as far as 1986 and the establishment of the NTA, um, the subsidiary companies in, in Ireland, the two bus companies and the rail company, they have a, a very direct relationship with the minister and they have a very direct relationship with the NTA. Mm. And so the holding company or the group really is... um it's probably not the best expression, but it's kind of like the banker of the group in some okay. respects. We have only 170 people at, at the holding company level and we do a whole range of shared services. And the most important function we have, it seems to me, is that we hold the negative, uh, the balance, the deficit on our balance sheet. So we hold the balance sheet that's okay. t- and we shield the operating companies from the from the worst of the balance sheet deficit, which at times has been huge in terms of its, its pension deficit, mm-hmm. close to a billion at times. And, and obviously that the markets favour us in this particular financial year. So I think from, from a, you're absolutely right, I think the, the bus companies uh, face competition uh, deregulation under, and then certainly I would have known from the NTA the pressure on, on us to at the NTA uh, bring in competition to the bus routes and now I'm at the CIE side I can see the other side of it in, in a slightly different way and they are subject to a lot of scrutiny around their cost base about their productivity around their um, performance etc Irish Rail is a monopoly and doesn't face any competition so it's a slightly different situation for them um, I think that the, the group I, I have been uh, the group structure is a challenge because the operating companies have a huge degree of autonomy. Yeah. They have their own chairs, they have their own boards. Uh, so I've been minded to tell my uh, stakeholders, my civil servants and my minister that um, it is a, a, a sort of a, an anomaly uh, in mm. terms of mm. governance structures within the state. And uh, CIE itself is a statutory body, but the operating companies are companies and they operate under company law. So there are certainly some governance challenges there. From an operating point of view, obviously, we, you know, quite soon after 2018 it seems like it wasn't that soon we had obviously we, as you say dealt with the deregulation and the opening up of the bus market with Bus Connects as well mm. another challenge in terms of dealing with stakeholders uh, very positive in terms of public transport but then uh, had a funding implication but also then had a lot of citizen engagement in yeah. relation to road closures and trees, guards, trees and gardens yeah, yeah. etc so that was challenging um, a very supportive minister I have to say in Minister Ryan so again we are we certainly have a minister who understands the need and, and it's a big proponent and, push, and pushes uh, public transport uh, but for the then we obviously had COVID, so again the but the we we then received a huge amount of support from the state from the government in relation to keeping our services going for frontline staff, um, and I'm now glad to say that we're now back to pretty much pre-COVID levels in terms of capacity utilisation, right. uh, which has been a, a fantastic. Uh, we don't have the same. I'm on the board of Network Rail in the UK, for example, and we're still probably eighty percent of pre-COVID levels in terms of uh, travelling patterns and, okay. and yeah. passengers. Okay. 
And you very kindly came to a forum event and spoke uh, last year on the theme of sustainability, mm-hmm. which is kind of an emerging theme, uh, certainly from the, from the public sector yeah. side. There's no formal requirements at yeah. the moment, but CIE seems to me to be one of the front runners on the sustainability agenda. I'm curious as to, as to why that is and, and how you, you got about it as a board. Yeah, well, I, I will pay great uh, tributes to my CEO, Lorcan O'Connor, who, who has been a big proponent of this. And Lorcan brought in Quiva Donnelly, who's our sustainability officer at the group level. Uh, and there's no doubt that, 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 that any success that we have has been down to the two of them, aided and abetted by some very good teams within the operating companies as well. So I think this has been taken as a very serious part of the agenda. Obviously, for any kind of carbon neutrality or, or zero, to meet any of the, 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 the targets that we've set as a country, public transport is a huge part to play in terms, mm. and then also things about like modal shift. Um, so decarbonisation carbonising the, the, the public transport fleet as it were or getting people out of their cars and onto public transport it's a big part of it and there's a lot of sophistication as well I mean around just biodiversity in, in Irish Rail around what you do along the whole line side mm. of the railway mm. tracks for example electrifying the, the rail fleet obviously then electrifying you know having electric buses um, but there's a huge amount of work these are long term projects I mean if you think about you know we have bus garages that don't have any plug in points so if you have an electric buses where do you plug in the, 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 the buses as it were so there's an awful lot of work that has to go on around that and then great committees within each of the operating companies who are doing fantastic work down at a circular economy down at all sorts of levels so it's been it's been a, a, a very positive agenda within the operating companies and within the group uh, but again I, I pay tribute and uh, almost exclusively to Lorcan and Quiva for, for pulling uh, the board through to up to speed with some of those issues uh, with my support I hasten to add but certainly they've done a lot of the heavy lifting Okay I, th- I think I mentioned that in the in- introduction your roles with the Scottish government and more mm. recently with the Northern Ireland office because your listeners will be particularly interested in how that works in terms of a non-executive director involved with a government and, and kind of a national governance apparatus Yeah Yeah they're both and they're both uh, they're, they're, they're different so in the case of Scottish government we're not we're not traditional non-exec directors we're, we have a more advisory role but they, they call us non-execs and, and we call ourselves non-execs so and, and it doesn't exist here so again for, for the listeners who are Irish based if you imagine that the uh, the MAC which is the great meeting of sec gens uh, that happens in, in Ireland here on a Tuesday morning as I understand it uh, if you imagine that they then invited 10 um, strangers into that meeting to sit with them that's what, <laughs> that's the role I have in Scottish government now so they have a corporate board which at, at which the they call them DGs we call them sec gens so the DGs of Scottish government, so they would be, you know, education, health, um, exchequer, um, whatever the different departments are. Um, they meet and they discuss the business of, of governing Scotland, and we sit alongside them uh, in those meetings. And then we're paired. I'm paired with the the DG Net Zero and the DG Exchequer, so they're the two pairings I have. So I would spend a lot of time with them. Uh, with Roy and with Alison separately and their teams going through their agenda. So they're a whole government department within Scotland mm-hmm. uh, funded pr- uh, sometimes by the f- by the tax raising ability of the Scottish government but primarily they're funded under the Barnet Consequentials Barnet Formula up from Westminster in London. Um, so again very interesting very interesting political landscape at the moment. Um, you get a great insight into how the civil service works mm-hmm. in, in Scotland and I'd have a good sense about how it works here in Ireland but certainly um, having um, the ability to give advice um, as best you can to, to the civil service as they deal with particular issues has been has been um, a fascinating role. How do you find the receptiveness to to outside it's thinking mixed. and advice and so yeah, on? Yeah, it's okay. mixed and and sometimes and again uh, one of the challenges there is that you you have to try very hard to leave your politics at the door. Mm. So when you're sitting in a meeting with a senior civil servant uh, in any country for that matter, uh, but certainly in Scotland, you know, you might uh, you, you're you're advising them on how to do something, uh, but the, what what it might be might be something that you totally disagree with. 
with. So it might be a piece of government policy that you disagree with on a personal level. Mm -hmm. So you have to try and leave that at the door and say, okay, well, if they're being asked to do something in relation to child poverty or the relation to education or in relation to health, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't do that if I were a government, uh, then you have to try and leave that at the door and just provide practical advice. In my case, you end up doing a lot of compare and contrast. So I would be able to share with them what the Irish government is doing in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good example of that might be in relation to um, borrowing capacities. I mean, and the extent of which uh, the Scottish government could or should have more borrowing capacity. And then referring back to how our the government here has been through its own trials and tribulations and going from, you know, bailout and IMF right through to the success that we have as an economy mm-hmm. today. Um, another big uh, example would be um, they always want to hear about our success in terms of inward investment. So again, you'd be might be working directly with the Scottish Enterprise Agency to ex- help them understand how the IDA and Enterprise Ireland here work. So that's kind of very practical and pragmatic. But sometimes you have a situation where you're working with a senior civil servant and they just cannot um, they just cannot get their minister to understand how hard it is to deliver a particular policy imperative. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. then you're just you're actually more like a therapist at that point in time. <laughs> and you just, you know, you just under, you listen to them and then you play it back to them that you understand the challenges that they're facing and you try and give them just some moral support at that point in time. Or indeed some talking points, perhaps to go back and um, speak to their minister and say, look, here, you know, this is something that you really need to say no to or mm-hmm. um, seek possibly the, the nuclear option of seeking a ministerial direction on. Um, and then the other side of it then is just working alongside the, the senior civil servants and their direct reports uh, just to bring normal governance rigour to a business case, to a risk register. So where you're just in there and you're looking at it thinking, well, you know, why is that 8 out of 10? Surely that'd be 7 out of 10 or 9 out of 10? Or mm-hmm. why is that amber not red? Or why is that green and not amber? Uh, and you're working through their, their thinking behind, uh, let's say, a, a, an individual risk register per department or the, the corporate risk register overall. Okay. And uh, Northern Ireland, which is more recent... Yeah, so that's different. So so within the Scottish government role, I'm embedded with the civil servants. Um, and the uh, in Scotland, there is a Scotland office at Westminster as well, which is part of the UK government. So within the UK government, they have a department called the Scotland office. Mm-hmm. And it runs its interaction with the Scottish government. And similarly, the Northern Ireland office is the one is a department that runs its interaction with. And there's a civil service in Northern Ireland as well, mm-hmm. the Northern Ireland civil service, which I don't have any involvement with. So it's kind of like the flip side of the coin. Uh, so the Northern Ireland office, that's Chris Heaton Harrison. We've seen plenty of Chris Eaton Harris back and forth over the in the recent times of the Good Friday Agreement yeah. celebrations or, or memorial uh, memorials as it were in the last uh, couple of weeks. So that um, is, but the role there um, is, and, and it's hard even for me to, to, to get my head around it in some respects, is that it's actually not as political as it might sound. Okay. So it's not my job to be telling Chris Eaton Harris what he should be doing or not doing in Northern Ireland. It's much more about how uh, Madeleine Alessandri, who's the Perm Sec, who's the DG of the Sec Gen of that department, you know, how is she running her department as a department? So it's very much more inwardly focused and much more around, you know, her risk register, her audits, her internal audits. So the kind of the the bread and butter and and the good housekeeping of a government department, has she got the right people in the right roles? What's her succession planning? So again, really good basic governance. But the idea being that if we get that part right, then that, that group of people are able to then do the policy delivery that comes down to them from the political system. Okay. It strikes me, Fiona, uh, even back to the introduction, and I didn't mention a number of uh, non-exec roles with financial services uh, firms and so on, that you are able to stand back and maybe draw some reflections, comparisons between 
private the private sector board governance from a private sector point of view and, and from a public sector point of view again is there market marked similarities differences yeah i guess they're they're very different i think at the end of the day and probably my my most relevant comparison point really was when I was when I was head of investor relations at Bank of Ireland. So that really would have been more where you were doing kind of board work for for, for what is a listed company. Mm-hmm. My financial services boards are um, I have three and they are smaller companies and they are two of them are funds and one of them is, is Evelyn Partners, a wealth manager. But they're um, much more um, sort of regulatory compliance um, boards. Mm-hmm. They only meet quarterly. Um, they don't have existential crises, thankfully, on, on, a, on a daily basis like the Northern office might be or Scottish government might be or indeed that the, the children's hospital might be. So I think that there is um, a pattern to a, a private sector. PLC is a little bit different because they've obviously got shareholders and stakeholders yeah. and they've got activists and possible different, you know, hedge funds etc. So I don't think, uh, I don't take it, I would imagine being on the board of a PLC is, is certainly a, possibly as challenging as some of the government boards. But the boards, the financial services boards I have thankfully are quite, um, they're straightforward we know what the agenda is going to be well in advance. Those meetings are well scheduled. There tends not to be any issues with them. And I'd say that now in touch wood. <laughs> but they're, they're straightforward enough with great teams and then the, uh, provide, uh, supported by great service providers in, in Dublin because, again, we've got a great service provider community here in the IFSC. So mm-hmm. there's just excellent people doing good work. Um, so they're... And they have a kind of pattern to them and a rhythm to them, whereas the government ones are, are just, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen next and you, you have to be prepared for, for a lot of unexpected um, things. And um, the other, the in the private sector, maybe I wouldn't go as far as to say PSEs necessarily, there is much more, um, you're much more in control of your own destiny. If one of my funds wants to do something, it can apply to the central bank, get approval, get the lawyers to write a letter and it happens. I could want to do something at CIE or the Children's Hospital or at Network Rail or at Scottish Government and it just won't happen. I mean, with the best will in the world because there'll be political interference or there'll be legislative issues or you need statutory instruments or you need mm-hmm. something else to happen over a period of time or there's no funding or funding is withdrawn or it's reduced. So it's much more challenging. You you don't have um, any sense of finality with these big public sector boards. They don't, you don't end the week on a Friday and think, oh, that was a good week. I've, I've managed to achieve X or Y. These just roll on and the big problems just roll on. And uh, you do sometimes wish there were a few little more definitive points of saying, oh, that was good. I got that done. But it doesn't yeah, feel, yeah. you feel like you're just part of a, of a big momentum and you hope it's moving in the right direction. Uh, and would it strike you that the, the relative risk appetite is one of the key differences and uh, maybe the tolerance for, for failure isn't as great on the public sector side or is that is that too simplistic? Um, well, risk appetite, I, I would agree. I mean, there's obviously, there's always a lower risk appetite within government, um, certainly, but uh, then, in, then in the private sector. But I think that um, failure is inevitable in, in, mm-hmm. in, in many cases, both in the public and the private sector, as it were. So the issue then is that it takes, everything just takes longer in the public sector. So so this idea of sort of fail and fail fast, which you might get in, the, you know, or you would have a problem within a private sector, one of my financial services boards, it might have a minor problem, gets resolved in a few days, it gets resolved in a week. Whereas, you know, you could spend six months trying to get someone's attention on an issue within the public sector, and then you're not sh- quite sure where it's going to go. Uh, Network Rail is another good example. I mean, they had um, under, under, uh, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, they had uh, the announcement of Great British Railways, which was kind of the whole new way of doing railways in England. Um, a massive change for the for the sector um, and Network Rail were at the heart of that. But then he left. 
Mm. You know, and then so that the tide went out on the political support for for GBR. Then it came back. Then it it, it didn't come back in with the the Liz Truss administration. Now it's back in with the current administration. So for the team within Network Rail and for us as a board, you know, we've got this massive big strategic imperative, and it's all guns blazing and requires legislation. And then you know the legislation diary comes out for for the Houses of Parliament, and it's not on the list. And you're thinking, well, where does that leave us? Okay, yeah. Whereas again, in the private sector, if you if a board had agreed to do a, to develop a strategy to do something to launch a new product go into a new market hire somebody it would happen more than likely um, but in the public sector you just you are very much at the at the mercy of politics and, and that's the way it should be by the way because I mean these public sector bodies exist to serve the citizens on behalf of the, of the, the policies that they, that they have voted in mm. I know your, your former colleague the, the CEO of the HSE Paul Reid I think he came out maybe re- reflecting back on, on COVID and experience I think he mentioned that we got 70% of the stuff right yeah which I thought was it was it was unique in a way for for a public sector uh, official to say we didn't get stuff right, you know, because and like like we talked earlier on that that that's reality. Surely, you can't get one hundred percent of things right. Yeah. Um, I just I was struck struck by the fact that he was acknowledging the fact. Yeah, no, and absolutely, and I and I again going back to my point about supporting the say the civil servants within the Scottish government or indeed anybody, you know, it, it, you 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 are sort of I wouldn't say empowering because that's that's giving me too much credit, but you are saying to them it is okay not to get everything right, right and mm-hmm. it is okay for this to be only eighty percent as good as it might be because perfection is not possible, or you might have made the wrong decision or you might have backed the wrong horse or something like that, and certainly I mean I am quite blunt in 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 my feedback and at my age and stage now at life, so I I will certainly be I would like to see myself similarly to to. Paul, in terms of speaking speaking the truth around certain challenges, and the ministers that I've reported to will probably attest to that, and the senior civil servants, and that um, I'm um, the, I'm very happy to share the good and the bad. And when something's not going well, and you know, a problem shared is a problem halved, sort of, not necessarily always the case, because often it gets put back on you. But um, you know, but certainly when you're doing a public sector board role, uh, you're not doing it for the money, as everyone knows. So you're doing it for the for for reasons that you you, know, you want to achieve the outcome. Uh, but that's only achieved if people understand the scale of the problem and the impediments to delivering. Okay. So one of the things we know, as I think as we talked about beforehand, uh, Fiona, we try to do with the podcast is maybe to explore also the, the personal side of, of holding these mm-hmm. positions. And I guess I'm looking at the Hospital Development Board, the HSE, CIE, and indeed lots of other old and kind of thinking, you, you like a challenge. Would, would that be fair enough? Yes, I mean, I, I, I do. And, and, um, and now, some days of the week, I don't like the challenge <laughs> and I just wish things could be easier. And going back to the point I made earlier about you just sometimes, like even like last Friday, I just said, you know, I finished out the week and I thought I'd like a little chink of light on some of these big problems I have mm. at the moment. And just I don't need to have a win. I don't need to have a, a, a full solution. I don't even need to see the end of the road. But I would like to see a chink of light at the end of the tunnel, not the whole light at the end of the tunnel. And so sometimes it can be quite relentless like that. Um, the Yes, yeah, so the cha- but but most most boards face a lot of challenges and, and, and to be fair and, and even in the private sector and PLC land in terms of, of what they're trying to achieve and, and then you know, unexpected challenges then if you think about things that happen um, you know I'm just thinking about the CBI for example in the UK now with a big scandal that's kind of wiped that out or you think about uh, Anheuser-Busch with their Bud Light campaign and mm-hmm. the challenges they face so again you might be thinking that you were on a nice board doing you know simple things and suddenly things get derailed very significantly or crises or wars or uh, so there are big challenges on many boards I don't think it's just the public sector um, and I think it's trying to bring um, 
my approach is, is not that I'm going to be able to deal with the challenge myself, but it's, it's, it's to try and bring everybody, to get the best out of the people around the table. And that's what I really try to focus on. And going back to, let's say, starting with the hate, that was one of the challenges with the HSE boards that we didn't know what we were all good at because okay. we were all new. So there was not, it wasn't a question if we were able to grandfather in a few people and say, look, at, you know, here's, here's, you know, we're delighted to have you X and Y because you've got a fantastic insight on clinical governance or you're a lawyer or you're an accountant or you're a risk manager. We were all brand new and we were all trying to find our own contribution around the table. Uh, similarly, at the, at the Children's Hospital, there's a lot of building experts at the board, which was appropriate for when the board was set up. But now we're into a different phase of the project. So now really what I need are commissioning experts. So you're trying to bring the best of the people around the table and point them at the problem uh, and try and get the best out of them tr through subcommittees work. So again, the challenges are there and, and I do like a challenge. But again, it's, it's only solved by working with the people around the table. It mm -hmm. certainly won't be solved. And then obviously then the, the stakeholders. So again, a lot of the time I spend um, briefing m my stakeholders and keeping them up to speed on what's going on. And then asking, asking for their support and advice on a regular basis. I don't, you know, again, I, you know, I believe in sharing the pain as much as, well as I can. Mm -hmm. were, you, were you in situ, just struck me a moment ago, were you in situ at the HSE when the cyber attack yes. happened? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Can, give me your experience of that from the board table. Well, that was, um, I mean, on top of everything else, that was just uh, absolutely shocking. And mm. um, again, you know, uh, as these things do came out of the blue and of course, you know, the amount of um, self-reflection and board reflection in terms of how do we not know and what did we not do and what mm. did we do? And obviously the report has been done and we, and we now all know what some of the challenges that the HSE faced. But again, I mean, you know, easy to see in hindsight, yeah, but at yeah. the time, and it was in the middle of COVID as well. I mean, it was just, you know, the focus wasn't on IT and on our systems. But I think that, um, yeah, it, and it was, it wasn't, it was, it was sort of the, um, do, do, the shock. Do, do you remember when you first heard and how you felt? Um, I think the, the immediate, um, well, first of all, it, well, very sick is how you mm -hmm. felt. You felt sick because the scale of it was so significant. I mean, it brought down all of our systems. And then you start thinking immediately of the immediate consequences of everything being closed down. Like we couldn't, we, we couldn't access our board papers that day because the email system was down. So like even though we were having sort of crisis briefing papers being sent to us, we couldn't even get them. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no one. And then the crisis centre was set up somewhere separately uh, that people moved to. So, but it was also the sense of, you know, the kind of the clinical challenges as well. I mean, what, you know, what equipment was going to work? What MRIs? Could operations go ahead? It was that immediate sense that the whole system and pe that people would die. It's urgent. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, this yeah. is absolutely. COVID was obviously bad enough in terms of people dying of COVID. Um, but here was a situation where you could just have someone make an absolutely catastrophic error by virtue of not having the data in front of them, the clinical data they mm. needed to make a decision about how to, what medication to give someone, whether to go ahead and operate or not. And that may not have been actually the biggest problem going on at the time, but that's how it felt from yeah, someone yeah, who's not, yeah. a, not a doctor. And, um, and then how quickly could we get it back up again? And... Um, but and it was also it during COVID, and so it was just like, oh my god, yeah. So that yeah, that wasn't a great day, <laughs> to say the least. It's a nice nice segue to to, to stress. Okay, so yeah. stressful periods or, or moments in your life. I'm just curious as to how you've you handle that. Yeah, because there's always that sense of regardless of what job we're in, trying to leave work at work and not take yeah. it home. But that, that can be tricky sometimes, and maybe just how you've gone about handling particularly tough moments? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm much better at it than I used to be. So I think that certainly and that comes with age and I think and a bit of maturity and a bit of experience as well. So again, certainly um, in, in my non-executive life, which is essentially probably the last 10 years of my working life, um, I've become 
every year I get better at it and, okay. and I'm still a, not the finished article in, in that respect. Um, the biggest stress it always relates to interpersonal relationships. So there's no question that, I mean, I can think right now off the top of my head of three or four situations that I'm dealing with, which are very much down to behaviours of a couple of individuals mm. as opposed to the behaviours of a system or the behaviours of a government or the behaviours of a funding agency. Um, so, and obviously within all those big entities are individuals as well. So I think that there is, um, so the stress comes from um, not being able to control everyone's behaviours, which of course you can't and you shouldn't and, and maybe you never could. So I find that's the greatest stress um, comes down to unexplained behaviours, you know, non-rational behaviours and you're trying to really understand why would someone do something like that? Mm -hmm. And it can be quite small or it could be quite big. So that's kind of where I find that because the, the, the overall stress is in terms of the work, you know, I'm very busy. There's a lot of work. You're on a lot of meetings. I'm travelling a lot. That doesn't stress me as much as it did in the past. And partly as well, my children are now. My youngest is actually finishing her last day in Trinity as we speak. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she's 22 and I've got 24 and 25. So again, I found it very stressful as a working mother when I was away a lot and they were still in school and you sure, felt yeah. guilty all the time about the missing socks or the fact that there was no packed lunches or you'd forgotten to buy bread on the way home from the airport and there was nothing the next morning. That was stress. And now that that's not that, that I used to find that very difficult. Um, and but I don't have that anymore now. Now, if I want to fly to London to a meeting, I can go the night before. I can stay mm -hmm. on an extra couple of hours. And I really find that makes a big difference. Uh, I can meet people. I can have time for lunches and such like, which is great. Reflect on your career and your, your career is very much in motion still. Uh, but could you pick out a best moment and toughest moment? I think um, the... I, I really enjoyed working in the States. So I spent about five or six years, a little bit longer when we moved, when I, I got married and moved to California. And uh, I was lucky to get uh, some very enjoyable roles when I was in California. And I really enjoyed that mm. period of time. Uh, I found the States, working in the States, very uh, empowering, very... Um, you know, you were, you were, it was positive. You were as good as your last deal. There wasn't the kind of the, you weren't dragged back by all of your misdeeds in the past and the, all the legacy memories of okay. things. Can do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, can do, positive. <laughs> and, and again, if you failed to part of our earlier conversation, it didn't matter. It was a big country. People didn't know. Whereas here, everyone knows if you fail. So, <laughs> and, and people can remind you on a regular basis as well. So I have to say from, from a career point of view, I found my time in the States very, very fulfilling. And even though the kids were tiny at that particular point in time, but I had good support. So I found from a career point of view that was very positive uh, as an overall period of time and a lot of autonomy, a, lot, a number of very senior roles. I was traveling across the States and it was during the, an exciting time with kind of the technology boom back in, in, in those days. Mm -hmm. um, the National Library role I had, which was my big pivot out of sort of financial services into what has now become really quite a public sector orientated career, uh, was, was what I describe as both the best and the worst job I've ever had. The best because it was to be the CEO or director of a national cultural institution in the National Library and it was a complete joy mm -hmm. to do that. But again, I had 50% less staff and 50% less budget. It was it was the dog teeth of the, the recession. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it was very difficult just to keep the doors open. So that was, uh, and, and, and I had some, again, some challenging, um, you know, staffing issues as well in terms of, of how we were able to approach things, trying to digitize and change work practices. Um, I had some interesting challenges with the unions. We had work practices that went back to 1865 when the library <laughs> opened. Um, so that was the kind of the really challenging part of it. But again, I, I really enjoyed some of that. And then the opportunity then just to have that stewardship of the national collection was just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I still miss some aspects of that role. Okay. I'm going to ask you again then that reflecting on the various non-exec roles, chair positions, what for you are maybe two to three key ingredients in terms of well-performing, well-governed organisations? 
Yeah, I think, again, it's um, a lot of it comes down. So certainly, you know, I, I, and I don't obviously want to opine on my own um, how good I am as a chair, because that's for others to say. But a good a good chair, a board needs a good chair. I mean, mm. d- there is no good board that doesn't have a good chair. That would be clearly my view. And so getting the chair right for an organisation is absolutely critical. Uh, the chair then has a direct relationship with the CEO. And, and then again, the chair and CEO relationship is, is absolutely essential as well. And if that doesn't work well, that's, a, that's not a good place or a happy place either. So the chair and the CEO, the chair and the board are, are two critical factors. Um, obviously with state boards you don't get to control who your other board members are. In the mm-hmm. private sector the chair would get to pick who sits around the table. So I think we've had, uh, we've come on leaps and bounds and I, and I pay great credit to the state boards team for really improving and indeed to the people of Ireland who have applied to sit on state boards because again it's, it's sometimes a thankless task. So I think we've really improved the cadre of people who are sitting around the table. Mm-hmm. In my Scottish government role we're all um, again equally poorly paid in Scotland but again fantastic group of people that that bring their expertise to bear in the Scottish government. So I think that, you know, it's really around um, having good people uh, and and then having them sort of, if you take the the analogy of the chair as as the conductor of the orchestra, I think that's a really critical factor. Uh, Information flow is the next thing that that is absolutely essential. And there's so much information. So again, the the challenge now for board directors is is understanding, am I getting the right information in the right format at the right time? Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes with experience as well as being able to allow your executives that report to you uh, the safe place to say, look, here's the paper on which we're going to make a decision, but actually, can I go off piece a bit and discuss something that I'm actually worried about, etc. Mm-hmm. Or having the ability to notice the shuffling in the seat or the som- somewhat downward looking eyes where you know someone's uncomfortable or not, you know, not quite ready to commit some additional information to, th- to the decision. So it's, those are the kind of like high EQ and understanding what personal dynamics around the table. Um, and I think that um that's it. Informa- if you've got good information coming, but again, a, a board might only meet for three or four hours. It might meet for a full day. And even that, even the, the, the best and the biggest boards might not meet every month. So it's trying to do a lot of work in a small amount of time, which is why you have to trust your management team. And, and if you don't trust your management team, then you really have a serious problem. But in most cases, I mean, and certainly in my current roles, I mean, I have a fantastic opportunity to trust the, the management teams I work with. Um, and if you don't, then obviously in, in you, you have to make changes around that. Um, and then trust and respect, I think, at the end of the day, I mean, I think um, and then really for me it's around um, I would do a lot of work outside of the board meetings as well I will always um, call all my board members in advance of board meetings to check in okay. when the board papers go out I send a note out saying if there's anything on the agenda that has too little time apportioned to it per your view because you might be an expert on that call me let's talk about it I can see if I can expand the agenda then um, it rarely produces much in terms of feedback people tend not to necessarily call me up and say well they'd like something changed on the agenda or they'd like more time but sometimes it does and that mm-hmm. gives you an opportunity then to have a conversation um, I like to start every board meeting by really outlining what we're there to achieve that day so really trying to extract from what might be a five or six hundred page board pack you know and people who have have varying degrees of time to read that board pack before they get to the meeting to say that what we're really focused on today are the following two or three things and then I want to allow some free time for a conversation about this Um, and then really trying to push some of the more um, I shouldn't say mundane but some of the more you know housekeeping type issues uh, to a different part of the agenda or just to have them you know noted Um, but then you always feel when you have a whole rake of papers that are just being noted as opposed to being actually discussed that you might be missing something in that as well but again that's where you go back to your company secretary or your uh, management team to hopefully keep you on the right track Okay yeah it's interesting because I was talking with uh, colleagues recently about the idea of the the chairperson almost like the the football manager you know, the, the team talk at the start. The, here's my expectations for the meeting. This is what I want from you. 
uh, as opposed to just we all just sit down and okay agenda item one and we kind of go through the motions a little bit yeah yeah no absolutely and, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in, in, in that in that model and that's why again good subcommittee structures good chairs of your subcommittees um, and I would speak to the chairs of my subcommittees well in advance of their committee meetings mm-hmm. as well just to say uh, are you worried about the meeting have you got what you need um, what's going to come up um, do you need any support um, and then so that and then when they've had their meeting having a debrief so that when they come to report back at the main board I know fully what they're going to say mm-hmm. and again so you can see and anyone who is a board chair or even a board director will understand a lot goes on around the scenes around the table around outside of the meeting as well mm-hmm. in terms of preparation um, and then getting the best out of people you'll often have very quiet board members who have got an awful lot to add they may want to speak to you privately and so again making yourself available you know you might notice that someone was quiet in a meeting and I might call them up and say look what you know, I know maybe you didn't feel comfortable contributing today this was something on your mind that you want to share um, doesn't always as I say produce an awful lot but it produces enough for me also then to be confident that I haven't missed something and again I will say it again very directly on the table uh, I want to hear from everybody on this and, and I always mm-hmm. if, if there's a, something that's a very substantial decision point I will and I learned this from Peter Hendy at Network Rail he will say uh, I'm going to go around the table and I want a contribution from everybody on this issue mm-hmm. so there's no hiding out on that particular issue and sometimes uh, that's I will say that in advance so I will say to board members I'll email them to say um, FYI agenda item 6 I'll, I, I'm going to go around the table so please have your thoughts ready for when we okay. get to the board meeting and then that means and then people have actually at least read that paper and uh, they have their contribution and then it, particularly if it's a big decision that you're trying to make then you have heard from everybody you've got to make sure you, you, ha- you hear from them in the right order as well because sometimes some people can dominate yeah, the thought course, process yeah. as well but that's, um, that's just to be managed Okay I guess maybe the last one, and I really appreciate your time today. Um, you mentioned it a moment ago as a key ingredient, um, the, the, the CEO chair relationship, okay, in the spectrum of their uber pally up to they don't get on, and it's obvious to everyone in the boardroom. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as a, a balancing act in terms of you have building a relationship yet not too close. Um, I'm just curious as to how you found that over your, your various chair positions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, well, I've certainly at the moment in my three, well, my two main chair roles, CIE and, and obviously uh, the development board, uh, I have excellent relationships with the CEO. But you're absolutely right. You have to be conscious as well that even though I have a great relationship with David and Lorcan, how does that appear to the other board members? And again, is it too cosy? Does it look like we're... Uh, now we are talking all the time. I probably talk to both of them daily, in fact, because wow, okay. there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and certainly multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day. So there is a close relationship and you do know, I, and I know from being a non-exec as opposed to the chair, that sometimes I get to the meeting and I think, oh, they've discussed this a hundred times. Mm. What, what more could I possibly add? Um, but that's, so that you have to be conscious of that as a chair yourself. And certainly as a non-exec, I've observed uh, both of those different types of, of relationships. Um, I think the, the only, and you do have to, that concept of capture as well, whether the chair has captured the CEO, the CEO has captured the chair, mm. and you have to think that's a concept and governance that we all have to be conscious of as well. So I do think that, um, in the UK, they have the, the concept of the senior independent director as well. We don't really have it, in, in, certainly on the state boards here as a concept, but that's very useful as well because they're the, kind of the the watchdog of that relationship as well. And so mm-hmm. if there's a problem at, say, let's say at Network Rail, that I felt that Peter and, and Andrew were too close or they'd, you know, not, that didn't give enough um, openness to, to discussion, we'd go to Rob Rigaus as the senior independent director of that board. And, and, and people frequently do. They say to Rob, okay. please raise this with Peter. We'd like to have a discussion. And it's all transparent and everyone accepts it and it works very well. So, and you'll see that a lot, all PLCs would have a senior independent director. Mm-hmm. 
And so that concept of a vice chair or senior independent director, I think is a very useful device that we possibly could look at here where you have someone watching that relationship. And then similarly, if there's a bad relationship between the CEO and the chair, well, then obviously the question becomes who has to go? <laughs> you know, and then that's up to the board, then the board would have to make. And then if it's the chair that has to go, then the senior independent director is the one who moves on that in the UK. Okay. Uh, and if it's the CEO who has to go, then it's the chair who does that. So mm-hmm. again, not that easy in the state sector because obviously people don't move their ministerial appointments. It's not a question of just making a, a, a direct move on a chair or a CEO. It's not that easy to move people on. Mm-hmm. You have to just um, they have to hope it works. Fiona, thanks very much for your time. Very much appreciate it. Uh, for those listening in, you can find details on the Governance Forum at governance.ie.